The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Lauren Rublin is on a much-deserved vacation, and so thanks for joining us today as we learn more about the week ahead for stocks. We just came off one of the biggest weeks of the year in the markets. We had earnings reports from Apple, Microsoft, other big companies. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates by three-quarters of a point again, and GDP fell for a second quarter in a row, technically making a recession. And yet the stock market just had one of its best weeks of the year. We're now entering a period where things are really quieter, maybe messier. Baron and senior writer Nicholas Jasinski joins me to discuss all this and more. Welcome, Nick. How's your Monday? Hi, Ben. So far, so good. Um, markets are up a little bit today, um, which is interesting, like you pointed out, after a 4% rally in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ last week. Um, price of oil is down and, and bond yields are down as well. Yeah, any idea what's driving the market today? I know that uh, when I got in early this morning, things were very calm. Then the market dropped on some of this Taiwan uh, headlines that uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi might make a trip to uh, Taiwan tomorrow and sort of the saber rattling going on there. But then the market opens and after opening down, it's up. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's one of those funny, there isn't really a, a single driver for it. It just seems like right now the, the path of least resistance for, for markets is higher. Yeah, it really does. Um, I was reading a technical note uh, this morning where uh, they were talking about August as a tiebreaker, that you had this you know awful June. Um, the stock market makes everything back uh, in July. Um, and now we're heading into August and that August, you know, if we get a, a good August, um, that, that would mean that maybe there's uh, a lot more legs to this uh, rally. But if uh, it's a bad um, August, uh, we could uh, retest some of these lows. Uh, what do you make of that argument? It, there is a, there's some truth to that statistics for sure that, that the, uh, how August goes is how the, how the year tends to go. Um, of course, it's a time when a lot of people take vacations and there's, there's no Fed meeting. There's, there's a little less news. So, so, uh. Um, vol- uh, excuse me, trading volume tends to be a little bit lower and, and it doesn't take as much to move the market on any given day. Um, I mean, I think that that mean reversion is a pretty strong force and, and the market was up a lot in July after being down a lot in June. And um, so just that that simple math suggests that uh, that the market should be down a bit in, in August. And I think we'll go into some of the reasons why uh, why why you might want to be fading this this rally now anyway. Yeah, but you were telling me earlier that August uh, can be kind of a, a strange month, right? That uh, for all those reasons you cited, that we sometimes get a um, that on on average August is pretty good, uh, but when it's bad, it's really bad. That's it. It tends to be the worst uh, month of the year when it's when it's down, actually. Yeah, that that should be fun. So you know, all of this, I think, both the downside even and the upside that we've had has, has really been about the Fed. Um, and you pointed this out uh, in the trader column this past weekend that the market went from pricing sizable rate hikes through the beginning of 2023 to now pricing in rate cuts. Can you explain what's going on there? Yeah. So this term of peak Fed hawkishness has really been thrown a lot around a lot over the past week. Uh, 
basically the, uh, the, the, the peak in expectations, at least of when the, the Fed was going to um, finish uh, raising rates in mid-June was when that peaked. So that, that had the, uh, I'm looking at the uh, interest rate futures market. Um, and in mid-June, that, that was pricing in a peak Fed funds rate target range of 3.75% to 4% uh, all the way in early 2023. Um, today, that peak is implied at a top of 3.5% uh, in December. So that's just a point above the current target. And what's even more surprising is that the Fed futures pricing now implies two quarter point rate hikes between February and July of next year. So in other words, rate, rate hikes or rate cuts? Cuts, I should say, excuse me, rate cuts, um, which is surprising. That, that, that means that the market is betting that the Fed will significantly slow down the pace of its rate increases by the end of this year and then rapidly switch to easing policy um, next year. And that would take either two things. One is that, that inflation is vanquished and, and we're back to something that looks like a 2% annual rate of, of inflation. Um, I don't think you'll find many economists expecting that to happen over the next five or six months, just magically like that. Um, or the, the, the more nefarious side of it is that the economy is in such uh, poor shape and, and that the Fed needs to abandon the fight against inflation and start uh, easing, easing policy to support uh, the economy that's falling into a recession with unemployment rising and, and all kinds of other problems. Um, neither of those are really great outcomes for, for stock investors. Yeah, I mean, one of the things uh, I was reading this weekend is uh, um, a note from Ironside's macros, uh, Barry Knapp. Uh, he used to be the uh, chief strategist at Barclays a while back. Um, and he was saying that, you know, this idea that the Fed is pivoting, that it's uh, signaled exactly what you were discussing, the, these rate cuts uh, coming uh, uh, early next year. Um, it, it's kind of misunderstanding what's happening, that this is more like, I think he was referring to the early 90s, where you had this really big front loading of, of uh, rate hikes. And then you can slow down the pace where I think if I read it correctly, he's predicting actually the Fed only raising rates by a quarter of a point come September, which I believe is way out of consensus that right now uh, kind of everyone's expecting um, a, a half point uh, to a three quarter point hike again um, in, in September. Um, and, but the other thing that stood out to me, he's also arguing that this is good for the stock market, that now that you've had this front loading and you'll just get these smaller rate hikes uh, um, going forward as needed, that that's actually something that, uh, that the market can respond positively to. Um, and, and so I, I found that to be fascinating because it was one that seems very out of consensus to me, something I haven't been hearing from a lot of people. Um, you're right. So again, looking at the interest rate futures market, um, about a 50 basis point hike or kind of leaning on the upside of that to 75 is, is what's priced in right now. Um, but the thing is that will really depend on that, that meeting isn't until the last week of September, and we're going to get um, several unemployment readings, several inflation readings, a lot of data on the housing market um, and the job market between now and then. So that's really going to do more to determine the uh, um, what the Fed does in late September than, than anything else. It's, we're moving to this data-dependent Fed, um, which has its pluses and minuses. Um, there's there's a saying that, that, that uh, markets hate uncertainty more than anything else, more than bad news, more than good news. And um, so if the, the Fed is on this kind of uh, consistent path of a quarter point at each at each meeting, that's something that's easier for investors to price in and digest. Um, the other side of it, though, is that you don't really want to see the Fed be just on autopilot where, where it's ignoring the data coming in and, and just doing something because it's uh, it's easier for the market to digest. Um, so there's certainly uh, I, I, I agree with with uh, with the analyst that it's um, something that the market would like, but I'm not sure if that's that might be a little bit of wishful thinking there.
Yeah. Um, what also strikes me is that we have this uh, period now where, you know, the Fed just had its meeting and we're not going to get the next one until uh, the next meeting until September. Um, and th that seems like a long time um, considering everything that uh, could happen between now and uh, now and then that uh, we're going to get a, you know, a lot of economic data, um, but we're also going to get a vacuum in some ways as, as, as earnings come to an end. So it does seem like there's a, a lot that could go right, but also a lot that could go wrong during that period. Um, what do you think? Um, I think you're right. I apologize for the, the car alarm going on outside my window. Um, <laughs> the joys of living in New York. Yep, there you go. Um, um, so you're absolutely right. There, there's a, we're still in the thick of earnings season. Um, of course, the numbers being reported now are, are, are backward looking, but uh, it's it's a lot of, of, uh, of the, the guidance and management commentary that, that people are, are focusing on. And I'm sure we'll talk more about earnings later in the call. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, there, there is the Fed's uh, annual um, monetary policy symposium in Jackson Hole at the end of this month. That's more for, for big picture thinking, but I'm sure that there will be some headlines that come out of that meeting. Um, and, and just generally, it's, it's the summertime and trading volume is lower. And, and so the, the market reacts a little more violently to, to uh, headlines that might not be uh, as important uh, other times of the year. And we're going to get really the first headline, I think, that people are, are watching. It's going to be the July uh, payrolls data. And I can't believe we're already in August so that we can get this data. But it's coming out uh, Friday. What's expected and what do you think it's going to mean for the Fed? Yep, that'll be out Friday morning, 8.30 a.m. Um, right now, economist consensus, according to FactSit, is for uh, 250,000, an increase of 250,000 jobs. That would come after 372,000 jobs added in June. Um, and for the unemployment rate to stay exactly where it is right now and where it has been for a couple months at 3.6%, which is, I mean, that's super low. That's near a half century low in unemployment for the U.S. Um, a, a job reading like that is not going to dissuade the Fed from its its uh, rate hike trajectory. Um, the Fed has a dual mandate to focus on the, the labor market and to ensure price stability. Um, and right now, the labor market is in decent shape, if not even great shape. Um, and the uh, inflation is, is just a mess. So um, right now, that I mean, a reading like that would be easy. The Fed needs to continue raising interest rates. Do you think uh, um, a big, you know, if there's a miss um, in terms of the number of jobs created or even if you get an uptick in unemployment, um, do you think it would change uh, the Fed's mind? Um, so there still will be one more. We'll still get August numbers before the Fed's next meeting. Um, but I think barring something disastrous on the, uh, on, on the uh, jobs front on Friday, um, I don't think it's going to change much. Yeah, it, it certainly seems like the, the jobs market uh, really does not want to, um, to soften that much. I know we're seeing a little bit of an uptick in um, jobless claims. Um, they're up in the uh, 250s, I think, right now. Um, and that's something I watch just to see the, uh, you know, I look at the four-week moving average because that sort of smooths out the volatility in the numbers. Then I look at it on the year-over-year basis as sort of a sign when you know that rises above the year-ago number. That that's really a sign of softening, and we're not there yet. Um, it might might not be until uh, the fall. Um, and the Fed did uh, at its meeting seem. Um, I don't want to say worried, but it noted the strength of the, of the jobs market and that uh, um, there really hasn't been uh, the softening there. And I wonder how much they worry about uh, the, the the lack of slowing leading to um, to more inflation via via wages. Um, it will be an, uh, an interesting number. How do you think the stock market will react to it? 
I think it might be one of those uh, um, good news is bad news sort of days for for the stock market. If it is a strong jobs number, then um, then people make that that think about the, the the implications of that for for rising interest rates, and we might see a bit of a reversal of some of that. Um, what we've seen over the past week, where where stocks and bonds have rallied on the expectation that um, that, inter- that 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 uh, interest rates are going to not go up as quickly by the Fed. Um, so if we get a very strong jobs number. Then people make the calculation that okay, that means that wages are going to continue rising. That contributes to inflation. At the same time, the economy does not need to be rescued by the Fed, so it clears the way for the Fed to continue raising rates um, faster. If we get a, a, a weak jobs number, um, then I think that's just justifying the expectations over the past couple of weeks and the, and the moves that we've already had. So I wouldn't expect another big rally in stocks and bonds on a on a weak number. All right, um, that sounds good. So let's pivot. Now, um, you mentioned earnings before. How has this earnings season been going? Uh, so I would say the the um, generally things have been better than feared, which I think is a, it's a somewhat annoying and, and overused term. There's definitely some some spin in there, um, but expectations were pretty low coming into into the second quarter of earnings season, and companies have generally done better than that. Um, every single earnings season, companies tend to beat expectations. Something around three quarters of companies do that. Um, this, this earnings season hasn't been anything out of the ordinary on, on that front. Um, but as always, the reported numbers are about what happened three months ago, and, and that ship has already sailed. It's really it's the guidance and its management team's comments about the future that have been more have, have done a lot more to drive um, earnings day reactions for a lot of stocks. Um, and generally, those have been a bit more concerning. Um, definitely, management teams are they read the same. Uh, um, economist reports that we do, they may even subscribe to Barron's and, and they know that people are talking about a, a recession on the horizon and, um, and and what that means for consumer spending and all kinds of other types of economic activity. And um, there's a risk that, that people are just going to talk ourselves into a recession if, if this company expects a recession. And so they slow hiring and they uh, don't order as much from their suppliers, then that's going to see, it's going to impact other companies. And, and uh, um, there's certainly a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it. Um, so it's the, the past quarter has been okay in general. There have been some high-profile blow-ups, of course, but on, a, on aggregate, it's been okay, and, and it's been a little rockier on the on the forward-looking commentary side. And and the blow-ups to me have been a, a lot of the time in kind of this this area of uh, you know these stocks that were the high-priced uh, growth stocks um, that uh, you know some of them still keep uh, not being able to deliver the goods um, and have gotten hit hard. I was, you know, thinking specifically of Roku last week, um, mm-hmm. I believe it was, uh, and dropping uh, 25%. Um, one of the things Snap. that has, uh, sorry, go on. Snap was another big Snap. Uh, miss. Yeah. Snap was another big miss too. And, you know, these are, you know, Snap had been a problem child already. Um, one of the things that you had mentioned to me is that because of inflation, though, that earnings might hold up better than um, generally than people had expected. Can you explain that dynamic? Yeah, really. I mean, so earnings are, are, are revenues, I should say, are, are nominal. Um, so um, in a high inflation environment, companies are able to increase their prices and, and that'll keep sales rising. Um, the problem really is on, on, the, uh, on the profit margin side where... Um, it's not just companies that are raising prices for their customers, but also their suppliers and their input costs are, are going up. Um, so, so that's where the, the challenge is and is and how much of a lag is there between when companies are able to raise the prices that they charge their customers and, and uh, uh, when companies see higher prices from their suppliers. Um, so in general, 
uh, revenue growth has been quite strong for a lot of companies, but but earnings have been a little more challenged. Yeah, one of the things that struck me though is just how you can't even predict um, how a company is going to do based on the sector it's in. Last week we had uh, United Rentals had a fantastic week. They came out, they beat earnings, beat sales, talked up their margins, which I believe have been going higher. And I mean, it was just as good as you could, uh, I mean, even better than you could really expect from um, a, an industrial company, given the environment that we're in. But on the other hand, you had, sorry, I love that on the other hand phrase, um, you, you had uh, Stanley Black & Decker, which uh, blew up uh, after its report that was just terrible. And, you know, here are two industrial companies, and yes, they're different, and they have different end markets. Uh, Stanley Black & Decker, I think, has a larger consumer market, that kind of thing. But, you know, I think it does go to show that depending, that so much depends depends on how management is able to navigate through here and, you know, what kind of price hikes they can put through, um, how well they've been uh, able to just deal with all these uh, these headwinds that have been coming. And it just uh, it's fascinating to me that uh, you, you, you can't uh, just make broad sweeps about uh, most sectors out there. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You can say that a rising tide lifts all boats. So when, when times are really good, as they have been for the past year, then that, that's good for everybody. But But now when times are getting a little rockier, uh, the higher quality companies are the ones that can continue performing at a high level and, and it separates the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, it, it certainly does. So we're past all the really big tech companies, the Apples, the Amazons of the world. Um, but there's still a lot of companies uh, due to report this week and uh, and, and next uh, even. So is there, are there any that stand out to you uh, and we're talking about? Um, on Thursday, there are a couple of media companies reporting Paramount and uh, Warner Brothers Discovery. Um, those are the, the first of the the, uh, the legacy media companies really to be reporting. Comcast reported last week, which owns NBC Universal, but that's a smaller part of their big cable business. Um, and, and I mean, the entire media industry is shifting from the legacy business models of cable TV and movie theaters to ones that are more focused on streaming. Um, Paramount and Warner Brothers, no exception to that. Um, Netflix, of course, is the, the pioneer there, and, and they reported uh, earlier this earnings season, um, which was, again, better than feared. It was not as great of a decline in, in subscribers as they thought, um, and the guidance was a little better than expected as well. Um, for Paramount and Warner Brothers, it's really uh, um, both of those stocks are down by about 50% over the past year or so, um, and, and a lot of that has to do with the, the, the macro shifting expectations and preferences of investors, where um, when interest rates go up, you, the value of a dollar today is worth more than the value of a dollar in the future, and relatively more, I should say. Um, so for those legacy businesses, which still throw off a lot of cash flow, cable TV is a, is a very profitable business. Um, they've had a lot of big movies come out that bring in a lot of hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office. Um, but the problem is, so investors like to see those dollars today um, rather than, so rather than returning those dollars to uh, shareholders, those companies are both investing them into their streaming services, which are going to pay off sometime in the future. Right now, they're both losing billions of dollars a year um, on the streaming side as they grow those subscriber bases with the promise of a future profitable service. Um, over the past two years, you had a lot of focus on the subscriber numbers and, and investors seem to be happy with subscriber growth at any cost, but that's really that's changing. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me is that uh, with Warner, you have HBO, uh, HBO Max, I believe, is theirs. Um, and uh, it, I'm always struck by how much more expensive it is than every other service. I think it's, you know, $15 a month on, you know, Netflix is, 
um, I guess if you have multiple users on Netflix, you get close to that. Disney Plus is still about $8 a month. Uh, but the thing that also strikes me about uh, Paramount and their streaming efforts is I couldn't tell you how much it costs. Um, and I wonder if that's something that they're struggling with, they're going to have to struggle with, is just getting people aware of the product, getting them to go ahead and, and sign up for it. Yeah, and that means billions of dollars of investment in content and advertising and promotions. Um, before you before you are able to break even on those services, um, made a good point about HBO. They, they they like to talk about how they're the, the second largest streaming service by revenue after Netflix. They're not by subscribers, but because they have that higher average price, um, they're able to bring in a lot more revenue. And uh, for those who are wondering, I guess uh, Paramount's Essential Plan, which I think has advertising, is five dollars a month. Its premium plan is uh, nine dollars and ninety nine cents. Um, if anyone cares. Um, so as for the legacy businesses in, in, in the second quarter, um, the year-over-year -year comparison for the movie theater segments is going to be great because there were not that many movies in theaters this time last year. Um, and then the ad environment is generally okay. Um, people are more worried about what happens in the second half of the year. Um, and it's, it, it, it's a little, uh, th those ad budgets for TV are, are set on long-term contracts. And so it's not as sensitive to the whims of day-to-day of -day ad budgets like the digital advertising we talked about snap before um in the second half of the year you also have probably some more political advertising as the midterm uh elections approach um but again those profits are not going to shareholders not going to the balance sheet they're going into the streaming services um and that's just not as popular of a proposition with investors these days and that's why the stocks are off so much and, and quickly i know that uh, disney is uh next week but uh are we going to learn anything uh, from these companies uh, about Disney's earnings? Um, again, the subscriber number is going to be an important one, um, especially the, the mix of subscriber growth. Um, Disney Plus, which is their main service, is, is much more expensive in the U.S. and Western Europe than it is in um, some other markets like India, for example. Um, so, so investors will really be focused on how much of the subscriber growth comes from those much higher average revenue per user markets versus the uh, much lower ones. Um, and then the, the, the trends for the legacy business will be similar. Movies are back. Um, um, I think uh, inflation will be a big topic of conversation when they discuss their park segment, um, both on, on the wage side and, and, uh, and if, if uh, consumers are pulling back at all. That wasn't a problem in the first quarter or, or the fourth quarter, um, but I think that will be a big focus for Disney. Interesting. All right. Uh, that'll be an exciting one. Um, that uh, We'll see that stock's gotten so beaten up. Um, yeah, so I'm interested in a lot of the, uh, I mean, the, the biggest earnings growth this, this past quarter have, has, of course, come from the energy companies, um, just given what the, the underlying commodity has done. Um, I saw that, that Occidental is reporting on Tuesday. That's, that's one that I'm also interested in just because of Warren Buffett's big, big uh, investment there. Um, what do you expect from Occidental tomorrow? Well, Occidental is supposed to report a profit of $3.03. And when you talk about earnings growth, this is earnings growth. Uh, they reported a profit of $0.32. Cents, um, um, a year ago. So this is just, you know, a massive increase. And uh, we're seeing this from all the energy companies that because of the uh, higher price of oil, they're uh, just earning a lot more. Um, I was reading a note from Susquehanna that's saying that they uh, think that Occidental has already achieved its target of paying down $5 billion in debt, and they've started buying back uh, the, some of the $3 billion of, uh, of stock they said they would, um, and that, uh, you know, that they will 
buy back that stock. And once that's done, they'll go back to uh, paying down debt. Um, as you said, what's, uh, what's fascinating about Occidental is just the, the whole Warren Buffett uh, side of this. Um, I don't think it's really a shock that when you look at Occidental, it's had a much better year um, than even the rest of the energy sector, which has had a very good year. Um, the uh, energy select sector spider ETF is up 38% um in 2022 and occidentals up 124 percent and i think that's because um buffett has been buying it up um and that really puts a floor uh under the stock um that uh some of the others might not have i know our andrew barry um expects uh buffett to go ahead and then buy the entire thing uh, at some point um and at some point he might have to he just keeps uh buying up so much of it, there, there comes that time where you do end up having to uh, make a, a bid for the entire company. Um, what I, I, I do think is interesting is your point that uh, the, the earnings um, have been uh, for, for energy have been so good that, um, you know, it, it's actually lifting um, S&P 500 earnings. Um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but I think you do, right? That uh, um, we get earnings growth. Um, sorry, go ahead. I think I know which stat you're referring to. This is from Jonathan Golub over at Credit Suisse. So this was this this earnings season so far through the end of last week. Um, S&P 500 earnings per share overall are up 6.7%. If you exclude the energy sector, the S&P 500 X Energy is actually down 1.2% year over year. So without the energy sector, earnings per share for the S&P 500 would be down. Yeah, that, that's amazing. Though right now, I mean, th- this is the thing that gets people worried about energy stocks, if you look at uh, um, oil prices right now, they're getting hit hard again. We're down to uh, down almost 5% uh, at a, a little under $94 a barrel for uh, WTI. And uh, the problem with energy stocks is that, uh, you know, they, they sell oil and we can see exactly how much they're getting for it. And um, people start to worry when um, the price of oil falls. Um, we do seem to be trying to hold the bottom here. Um, I'm just taking a quick look at the chart. Um, and, and you've had, uh, you know, it, it holds pretty decently um, um, around, uh, I think it's actually come down even as far close to $90 um, a barrel, but um, not quite there. And so we're seeing this and it'll be interesting to see how it settles out. If that $90 breaks, then you have to start worrying about whether earnings are going to earnings estimates are going to have to get marked down. But it's one reason why Occidental is so interesting because Buffett is there. He's buying up shares that has to put um, kind of a floor under um, the uh, under the stock um, to. We had a question from Steve um, who was asking um why oil is down, um, what's driving oil down, uh, given that there is such a supply constraint um, and that's not supposed to go anytime, uh, go away anytime soon. Um, and um, I was wondering if you knew, what, first of all, what was uh, driving oil today? Do you have any thoughts? Um, you're right, it's down a little over 5% today, the US price of oil. Um, you know, it's a tough one. Oil has been quite volatile lately and a lot of that has to do with the, the shifting it's kind of those recession expectations. Um, certainly, if there is a recession, that means less industrial productivity, production rather, will drive a little bit less. Um, so there is less demand for, for oil. Um, but I mean, even an oil price at 93 bucks, that's still quite high by historical standards and, and well above the cost of production for, for every major oil company. Um, so that's still a, a, a price of the commodity that these companies can continue to really gush free cash flow and, and well out earn their cost of production. 
Now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's hard to forget that uh, oil was trading um, in negative territory uh, at the at the bottom in, uh, two th- in uh, 2020. Um, and the other thing that's just going on is that China, um, I think, is actually what's putting a uh, fear into it today. It's not just, you know, recession fears here in the United States, but China is so important to um, to what goes on with all commodities that uh, you have some uh, disappointing data from China over the weekend and you get a uh, decline in oil. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, there as well. We do get an OPEC plus meeting later this week um, and there's a good chance that uh, they they won't be taking steps that would uh, um, increase production um, or at least increase it in a meaningful way and that should help support oil as well. Um, so we've talked about oil. Um, another company that's coming up with uh, coming off earnings this week is Caterpillar. Um, Caterpillar, um, it, it makes mining equipment, really. Um, what's expected there? Yeah, also big, big China exposure. Um, so earnings per share are expected to be just about flat year over year, um, despite a 14% increase in sales. And that has everything to do with that we were talking about before with an inflation and, and rising costs. Caterpillar can increase its selling prices, but if all that it's doing is passing along higher input costs of labor and materials and energy and transportation, then that's not going to budge earnings. It's just going to keep earnings flat while the top line goes up. Um, it's also a very international business, not just China, but but all around the world. So a stronger U.S. dollar, that's a headwind to sales and earnings once they're translated back to U.S. dollars. Um, and I think, as with a lot of companies, this earnings season, investors will really want to hear about management outlook for, for demand, dealer inventory levels, all that. Um, that needs to remain strong enough to pass through those price increases or else it won't be pretty for Caterpillar. Um, and the company, the company had an investor day back in May. They guided to profit margin growth going forward. And I think investors will want to hear from management if, if that's still doable, um, given how inflation and, and all that has gone in the several months since then. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's really going to make a difference. But for all these companies, there's one issue that seems to be hanging over them. And uh, I think we can finish up here. And it was actually a question from uh, from Marianne, um, where... She says, when previously in history has there been mixed signals regarding session like today? Um, and, and I want to talk about that idea of recession. Are we in one? I know we had those two quarters uh, in a row um, of negative growth, um, which would that's kind of the back of an envelope, simplified definition um, of a recession. Are we in one? Uh, well, Ben, you've been you've been in the market longer than I have, so I'll leave the historical comparisons to you. Um, as for as for this year, I don't think we're in a recession, not yet, um, at least. Um, the, yes, we had two quarters of, of real GDP decline in the first and second quarter by rather small amounts, but but uh, the first quarter had really a lot to do with a surge in imports, um, while the decline in the second quarter had a lot to do with destocking excess inventories. Um, job growth continued in every single month of both quarters. There was never a material decline in consumer spending or business investment um, or even the housing market. Um, so the, 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 there, there isn't that broad-based decline in economic activity or spike in unemployment that, that real recessions have. So you can have a technical, but the math says that, yes, GDP declined, um, but I wouldn't call it a recession. 
Yeah, and what's uh, also interesting to me, and just thinking historically, and I don't really have a good answer to that question, um, but it would seem that maybe the 70s is probably the best example, just because inflation plays such weird games with uh, with the uh, with the growth numbers. You know, we're having a, a those numbers are real, so they subtract uh, inflation to get uh, to get the negative no- number, um, but uh, nominal. Um, GDP is holding up. So in some ways, and and this is still something I'm trying to figure out in my head is that it, it feels almost like, you know, we, we do have this activity going on, but it's only, it's not even keeping up with inflation. So we're almost like hamsters on a wheel, or maybe we're on a treadmill, then we're just, we can't keep up with the speed of the treadmill. Um, and, you know, it's just a very, uh, very tough uh, environment to try to get a gauge on. Um, you know, we have consumers who are spending more, but they're spending more because they're the things that they have to buy um, are going up in price. Uh, and, and these make it a, a very tough call. So certainly if, if there is a recession, it is not a traditional one. And I agree with you that it's not until we start seeing the job market, uh, that the pain starts showing up in the job market and things like that, that I think we can finally say um, that uh, we are in a recession. Um, Absolutely. I, nominal, nominal GDP in the second quarter increased seven at a 7.8% annual rate, increased. While the, the real GDP declined at a 0.9 percent, yeah, which is from. which is it is wild. Um, so there are a, a couple more questions here. Um, one comes from Hal asking about megatech, um, these big tech companies. Can they continue to drive the market higher? Do you have an opinion on that? Um, I think that perhaps Meta aside. Um, all the big tech companies are, are still there. These are amazing businesses that you want to own for the long term. Um, in terms of driving the market this year, not necessarily. There's still a, a large weight in the uh, in the S&P 500, and, and what big tech does has a, has a material impact on the index level. Um, but I don't think it's going to be the same, at least this year, of, in terms of the, uh, I mean, you have a, a comparison to huge growth over the pandemic where that really benefited all these digital businesses, um, e-commerce and all that. Um, so, so I think that, uh, that this year is going to be a little tougher and we saw that with all the earnings last week. Um, so, uh, I think in the short term, no, but, but I wouldn't count them out over the long term. Yeah. What's also, uh, fascinating is this, uh, you know, I always like to go and look at the, uh, the charts. Um, but a lot of these stocks found their support, um, kind of where you would expect them to, um, the, the NASDAQ, for example, held its 200 a week moving average. This is a moving average that I don't usually look at. It's such, it's such a long one. Um, I don't tend to look at weekly charts, but this is being highlighted by uh, Rich Ross over at Evercore. Um, but NASDAQ has had 12 years of support at the 200 week and it held it this time. Um, and you're seeing that from some of the other tech stocks as well. Um, so, so I think you can see um, you know, the, the market needs these guys to do well um, in order for it to do well. Um, but I think, uh, you know, it's going to be a lot of it's going to come down to um, to bond yields. You know, are they going to stay lower or is inflation going to remain hot and uh, force the Fed to have to raise rates more? And that would cause bond yields. It's, it's really hard to know. Um, so I wish I had a better answer for you, Hal. But uh, I, I think the market needs the tech stocks. I'm just not convinced that they have a lot more upside given how much they've moved already. Um, and I think that's uh, we've come to the end of our questions and the end of our call. 
So thank you, Nick, for being here. And thanks to our audience, as always, for tuning in. Uh, it's great having you every week. Please join us again tomorrow. Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Dan Niles, Founder and Senior Portfolio Manager of Satori Fund, on the outlook for technology shares. Thank you for listening. Be safe and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.